Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. If we can bring the house lights all the way up, I'd love to see all the uh, good packed house and all the beautiful faces we have here today, even on a holiday weekend. So, hey, Mike, I appreciate the wave. Thank you. So it's great great to be with you this Martin Luther King weekend. And as we begin, I would love to just share a prayer uh, from King's, Dr. King's mentor named Howard Thurman. They connected while King was a student, uh, doctoral student at Boston University. And Thurman is really one of the best spiritual writers we have in our American uh, tradition. And so as we kick things off today and remember the life and work of, of Dr. King uh, this weekend, let's pray this prayer here together. From Dr. Howard Thurman. Oh God, I need you. I need your sense of time. Always I have an underlying anxiety about things. Sometimes in a hurry to achieve my ends, and and I do so completely without patience. It is hard for me to realize that some growth is slow, that not all processes are swift. I cannot discriminate between what takes time to develop and what can be rushed because my sense of time is dulled. Oh, to understand the meaning of perspective, that I may do all things with a profound sense of your time. Oh God, I need your sense of order. The confusion of the details of living is sometimes overwhelming. The little things keep getting in my way providing ready-made excuses for failure to do and be what I ought to know to do and to be. Much time is spent on things that are not very important, while significant things are put in an insignificant place in my scheme of order. I must unscramble my affairs so that my life will become order. Oh God, I need your sense of order. And God, I need your sense of the future. Teach me to know that life is ever on the side of the future. Keep me alive in the future look, the high hope. Let me not be frozen either by the past or the present, but grant me, O patient God, your sense of the future, without which all of life would sicken and die. And so, Lord, I thank you for these words, these prayers, which resonate so deeply to our time, a gift from Dr. Thurman, a mentor of Dr. King's. And I pray as we look at the opening words of the scriptures today, we would get a sense of your time, a sense of the order and the rhythm in which you have created us to live with God life. And God, we pray that we would have hope for the future, freedom from our worry, so that we might faithfully know you and follow you this very day. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. And everyone said together, amen. Well, have you ever stopped and wondered, why did God create the world? Was he bored? Was he lonely? Was he a glutton for drama and wanted to watch almost an endless reality TV show play out before him? Now, some of you might be wondering here if you're new or maybe just exploring Christianity. Well, maybe the question I'm not wrestling with is, why did God create the world? But did God create the world? How can we have some proof or assurance that God is the person, the architect behind all that we live and see and experience? 
Well, for a lot of us in church, kind of the answer you might predict is for us to say, well, the Bible tells us then Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now, for some of us, we might think, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, I don't need to think about it anymore. But for others of us say, well, how can we trust this book? And I would encourage you to do some research. As you, as you will discover, the Bible has profound historical veracity. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. We have more ancient manuscripts dating farther back than any other book that is out there. It's impressive just how reliable and trustworthy these words are that we can count on. But maybe if you're going to turn from outside the Bible, how can we believe that God really exists? A fascinating principle that was developed by non-Christians initially, uh, by scientists and philosophers, has been called the anthropic principle. And here's what it states. When we look at the world around us, it would seem, at least at first blush, that the universe was somehow designed to support and to nourish life. Here's just a few examples just by what we see around us and scientific studies show. For example, the air we breathe. If the carbon to oxygen kind of balance had somehow been different than what it is, if you changed it just a little bit, air would be impossible for us to breathe. How about the tilt of the earth's axis? How many of you were thinking about the tilt of the earth's axis here today? <laughs> if it was tilted in just one direction this way, the world would be too cold to support human life. If it tilted the other way, it would be too hot to support life. Or suppose the earth had just been slightly closer to the sun or further away from the sun or just a little larger than it is or a little smaller or if it rotated a speed faster or slower than it's spinning right now. Any of these changes would lead to temperature variations that would cause life to be fatal. And these are all things we can explore and verify. Yes, there is a designer behind the intricacy and the complexity of this world. It was created so precisely that it probably just didn't happen randomly. It didn't happen by chance, but by design. By a designer, we believe, is God. And there have been brilliant people all throughout the ages who have found these facts to be true and trustworthy, things we can rely on and count on. In fact, it might be harder to believe that God didn't exist or God didn't create the world based on all the evidence that we find. And so if God did create the world, then let me go back to my original question. Why did he create the world? Probably the most satisfying and succinct explanation I have ever heard from this, that I resonate with, comes from the Spanish leader, St. Ignatius of Loyola, over 500 years ago. And Ignatius, in drawing from some of the greatest Christian wisdom from the early church all throughout the centuries, made this conclusion. God who loves us, creates us, and wants to share life with us, now and forever. God who loves us, creates us, and wants to share life with us forever. In other words, God himself is a God of love, perfect self-giving love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love is not just tolerance where we just say, do whatever you want to do, and that's love. No, love is about self-giving, to promote the good of another. We see what love is in what Jesus has done. 1 John 3.16 says, this is love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. 
And so God is a perfect relationship of love, and the overflow of the perfect love that God experiences within himself, the nature of that and the overflow of that is to give and to create. So God created the world from love, out of love, for the purpose that we might share in the very loving relationship that he experiences within himself. That's the why behind everything we see. And if that's the why, I believe, then what we should have as the purpose, the direction, the meaning for our life is to live life with God, to share life with him now and forever. That's life's greatest opportunity and invitation. But while God invites us, creates us to live a with God life, he's also given us the freedom to live a without God life. And that without God life is the reason that when we look around and see that things are not the way they should be, that's the reason for it. We have severed ourselves from the life-giving relationship with God that we were created for. But as we'll see today, even in the midst of some of that frustration, some of that disappointment, some of those mistakes, there is hope. Well, it's good to be with everyone online and everyone here at the pond. And if you are new or visiting with us, you picked a great week to be here. My name is Dave. I serve as one of our pastors. And we're in week two of our year-long series called The With God Journey, where we're going from Genesis to Revelation and seeing that the key that unlocks the meaning of this often difficult and complex book is that God desires to have a relationship with us. It's the with God life. What holds all of the Old Testament books together? And I'm going to review. Last week, we didn't do so well on telling me how many Old Testament books are there. How many are there? We didn't you know, keep working on this one. There are 39 and then 27 New Testament books. I'm not going to ask that one. I don't want to get disappointed. I'm going to keep working harder here to teach. But uh, what holds the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books, these 66 books together, is what we might consider this Emmanuel principle. God is with us. Almost every page of the Bible, we see God whispering, nudging, inviting us to live life with him now in a life that can go on forever. In a moment, we're going to turn to the earliest chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 3. But just a couple quick things to let you know about. If that whole discussion around the anthropic principle and how do we know that God exists is something that's intriguing to you, we're kicking off a new Monday school class on January 30th at 6.30 right here in this room on Christian apologetics, which is a course that helps lift the doubts that many of us have. It helps to help us be equipped to be able to share our faith, defend our faith, talk to people about why this isn't just some blind leap, but there is real evidence for God's existence, the historicity and trustworthiness of the Bible, and plenty of other questions. We'll have Monday school for kids as well, because we want to help deepen our children's faith as well. And so that will be kicking off January 30th. And one other piece of great evidence we have, the Bible's true that all this is real, is actually the land of Israel itself. You can walk the very places that Jesus walked. You can find archaeological evidence that confirms and uh, again and again that what the scriptures say is true. And so in about 18 months, July 2024, we're going to be taking a trip as a church to Israel. And we'll have an informational meeting about that next Sunday after our 11 o'clock service here at the Pond Campus to help you register and find out a little bit more. But now, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to bring a Bible with you here each week and we can take notes and follow along. We're going to look at some selections from Genesis 1 and 2. We'll look at the with God life and then we'll look at Genesis 3. How did we go from a with God life to a without God life? So if you are able, please stand with me as we hear God's word today. Genesis 1, and we'll do some selections through Genesis 1 and 2. Starting with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And skipping down to chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs or a piece of his side and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Through God's very words, you may be seated. And for all the little kids out there and the young at heart, yes, we said naked in church. Uh, so. <laughs> so much to unpack in these chapters, and we'll get to chapter three in a little bit. So I want to hit some of the key highlights that I think will help elucidate how we are invited to move from a, with God, with, from a without God life back to a with God life. So let's look at how we were made for this. So God created all that there is. Six days, he is working. The seventh day, he is resting. Now in our kind of Christian uh, tradition, there are some differing viewpoints about whether or not God created the world in a literal 24-hour period for that week? Or does each of those days signify something more than a 24-hour period? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Where are you laying? Because I don't want us to come to blows together here or anything like that. There's an old statement from St. Augustine where he says, Do every, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. So what's essential is that we believe God did in fact exist. What might be non-essential is exactly how long it took him to do that. But what is absolutely crucial is that we hold these views lovingly. So for folks who would say, yes, the, God created the world in a literal seven-day, 24-hour period, the reason they would say that is, well, that's probably the most obvious reading of the passage. The word in Hebrew for day seems to signify like a day. Uh, there's, that's what it really means. And so we're likely to think it's a 24-hour period. But many others would say it's possible that that day in Genesis 1 was lengthier than a 24-hour 
period. And here's why some people would hold this view. First, Genesis 1, let me see if I can get a cleaner sheet here. Genesis 1 was written in a Hebrew poetic form. While it doesn't rhyme, there is parallelism at work here. Not the easiest word apparently for me to say. Uh, The parallelism is this. In day one, it says God created the light, but the sun does not get created in the moon until day four. Day two, we see this rhythm of we separate kind of sky from, from sea and the water. And then in day five, we get kind of the birds of the air and we get the the fish of the sea. It gets populated. And then in day three, we have the land. And then day uh, day six, we get animals and and we get human beings, uh, people. It's good, 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 good. And then when people are created, God says it's very good. Now, folks who maybe think against a literal 24-hour view, they would say, well, if God created this sequence sequentially and, uh, and it's a literal 24-hour period, people would push back from that, would say, well, if God made light in day one and he creates the sun on day four, what's happening here? So those who might not go for the literal view and what this view might be called the more day-age view would see that God is not trying to communicate exactly how he did this, other than he did do it, but to show a rhythm. Because then on day seven, the rhythm of life that God follows, that we, if we're going to live life with him, are to follow, is one in which there are six days of work and one day of rest. There's kind of a cadence involved here. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. Maybe that's what God's trying to communicate. But then, you know, if we're kind of getting confused by this, 2 Peter 3.8 just throws this interesting wrench into the whole conversation. It says, to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So how long is this day here? The bottom line, I believe, is that God did something that's mysterious. It's It's worthy of our worship and pondering and wonder. He made all that we see. And he who is eternal created time. And we are trying to view what this eternal God did within a certain time, limited temporal time uh, existence that we find ourselves in. And so a lot of this is going to be beyond what we can fully fathom. And so this is a mystery, I believe, for us to behold that will just enable us to have more awe and wonder of God. But if we want to live a with God life, and this is how God has kind of woven into the fabric of creation, this rhythm, one, two, three, four, five, six, rest. Then I bet one of the main reasons a lot of us aren't experiencing more of the presence of God or sensing him or being more and more aware is we're not resting nearly enough. We're not creating nearly enough margin into our own lives. We're pushing everything to the limit. We suffer from hurry sickness. I love that prayer from from Dr. Thurman earlier. Give me your sense of time and pace, God. But I believe as we start to practice Sabbath, which is essential, a 24-hour period to play and pray and rest, that we might be able to sense God more and more. You know, for me, since 
Sundays, you know, the one day of the week that I work, I don't Sabbath here on Sundays. I kind of do a Friday evening to a Saturday evening time. And I really try and remember that I'm a human being and not a human doing. Uh, I still have two-year-old diapers to change. There's other things that aren't exactly restful that are a part of it. But I try and put aside my working life, my, my church life as much as I can. And to try and enjoy what God has given me. And I need to slow down in order to to do that. It's fascinating that if we live a with God life, we're also called to live a with others life. And in the great, uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, uh, the first three have everything to do with how we rightly relate with God. And then Commandments 5 through 10 have to deal with how we relate with other people. And a lot of scholars would say Commandment 4, which is about remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, serves as kind of the bridge between living with God and living well with others. And so somehow woven into the fabric of creation is the need for margin and rest. Yes, good work, but also rest. How might God be inviting you to join him by, yes, working hard, but also trusting him enough to take a 24-hour period as much as you're able, and you might need to grow toward this, but to play and to pray and to rest, to kind of be re sold. Now, I used to always think that work was something that God didn't originally intend for us to do, but it's a result of sin in the world. But work, as we're going to see here, was woven into the very beginning of how God created us to live life with him. It's not just all prayer and worship. It's, it's also about joining God and what he has given us responsibility to do. And so in Genesis 20, uh, 1, 26 to 28, we start to see that God is calling us to rule over fish of the sea, birds of the air, life. We're responsible for what happens here. And then Genesis 2 kind of gives a retelling of Genesis 1. And in verse 15, it says, God put the man in the garden to work it and care for it. Why don't you turn to somebody and just say, God created you to work it. Do you know that? God created you to work it. Now, that might be one of the strangest things you ever told somebody in church and out of context. I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that, but God has actually created us to work. In fact, the Hebrew word for work and worship have a lot to do with each other. We were not created to have a working life and a worshiping life. I think one of the big dualisms that needs to be broken down is the separation between Sunday worship and Monday school or work or whatever you do. Our work as we do it with God is an act of worship. God has made us to do really good work for the blessing of others and for our own uh, good as well. You were made to work, and your work is an aspect of your worship. So doing really good work is fundamental to how we were made in God's very image. And this weekend, it's important to remember especially the fact that every person, no matter their background, ethnicity, whatever it might be, is made in the very image of God, which is why Dr. King said, everyone has been created equally. And I believe if we practice the way of Jesus together, there is absolutely no room for racism in the way of Jesus. Why? Because everyone, everywhere, always is an image bearer of God. Someone created with inherent dignity and worth. It's sometimes fascinating just to look around at a room full of people like this, or maybe you're in the airport, wherever it might be, and just look at all the varieties of people And just start to acknowledge image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. 
You start to see the work of God so beautifully created uh, that's so apparent to us. And you start to see there really is an inherent dignity and worth and value to everyone, even if they agree, don't agree with you on every issue. Even if they live differently, they are, are to be treated you know, with love and kindness and respect, at the very least. We are image bearers of God. And there's so much we could say about that, but God's given us a creative capacity. And maybe what sets us apart from others is that we have the gift and the opportunity to relate and interact with God in a beautiful and powerful way. We're invited into a with God life. But as we go beyond these verses in chapter 2, we start to see the first thing that God sees is not good. And that is for man to be alone. You might consider that loneliness. A with God life is a life that needs connections with others in a deep and meaningful way as well. So we get this image of God taking man and creating a helper suitable for him. And that idea of rib is really coming from the side. And I think that coming from the side means that between men and women, there's not to be a hierarchy, but there is differences. There are meant to be a complementary type of, of interaction. And uh, when, when Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's describing how maybe where I'm weak, she is strong. Maybe where she is strong is maybe where I am weak. There's a complementary nature to this. And one of Adam's big tasks in the garden was to name everything. And so when he sees this uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, figure standing next to him, he goes, whoa, man. <laughs> Woman, you know. That actually played better than I was expecting. For once. Wow. Making sure you're with me. And they were designed through marriage to become one flesh. This idea of one flesh, this one life that we're building together, the word for one in Hebrew is achad. And what's powerful, and I always talk to couples when I do premarital counseling, I often share this in weddings, that as, as there is this union between man and woman that occurs, there's something that is powerfully spiritual about this. Because the same word that used here, achad, for one flesh, is also a word that describes God himself. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And so this union is something that can be reflective of God himself. We are called to reflect the very nature of God. And so we see what a with God life begins to look like. It's a beautiful invitation for all of us. But in chapter 3, we start to see where things start to go really, really wrong. Let's look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman this, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's talk a little bit about this here. The serpent is a creature that Satan uses to inhabit. Because if Satan kind of showed up as Satan... You would immediately, I should not listen to this voice. This is evil. This is an enemy. But he comes in a subtler form. And I believe in our day and age too, he still speaks. He still tempts. He, this is still a battleground that we find ourselves in. And he often does it through unassuming means. Often our own thoughts, sometimes the world around us. But he wants to sever us from the 
with God life we were made for. Because he himself was severed from that. Now, where did Satan come from? That's always a big question a lot of people wonder. Uh, we see many parts of the scriptures that talk about this. Jude 6 is a big passage. I want to share Isaiah 14. It talks about he is a fallen angel. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 says this. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on throne on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the pits, the depths of the pit. Without going into all the details of this, the bottom line is Satan was a created angelic being who created to worship God, created to live life with God in this heavenly realm. And yet he chose instead to want God's life as his own. He wants to be like God. And so what's the root sin behind everything? Why has the world gone wrong? It's ultimately about pride and ego. And see, since God created us to have a with God life, he doesn't want to coerce us into this. So God has given us free will, including apparently the angelic beings to choose a without God life. And what Satan wants to do is to try and pull us away from the life with God that we were made for. It's the why behind all of existence to try and live life apart from him. Here's how the story goes on. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So what takes us away from a with God life? How do we go from a with God life to a without God life? Two key things that we see in this text. Grasping and hiding. We grasp after the fruit from the wrong tree. And that grasping like the enemy, we want our own autonomy. We want control. We want to live by our own truth instead of God's. We want to kind of go against the fabric of creation. And they say when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. But we don't want to believe that. We don't want to trust that. We want to be in charge of our own lives to play by our own rules. And as they do that, shame starts to become inherent in what they feel. And they start to hide from God. They hide. And just as they did that, I think this is the explanation for how we also move from a with God life to a life apart from Him. We grasp after things that we desire as well. I want my timetable. I want this my way. This is what feels right to me, and so I'm going to take it. And in grasping for it, it might 
be satisfying for a little while. It might seem to work, but ultimately, it disconnects us from God. And when we're all grasping after what we all want, we're not taking into consideration others. And sometimes when we get what we want, it means someone else is hurt. Someone else pays for that. And we live with a nagging sense of shame as well. And what ways are you grasping after a life for yourself rather than surrendering to a life with God? And how might we be hiding from God? I think we all do this, even if we're believers. Now, if we're maybe not a believer, we hide through, you know, pursuing things like money or sex or power or fame, whatever that might be. But even for us as believers, because we still carry around some shame and guilt, we can often keep ourselves a little distance from God. We can be resistant to Him. I've seen folks, even in my own life, hide from God because, you know what? I know this Bible. I've got the right beliefs. I, I know how to vote. I've got all, I'm, I'm doing all the right things, so God must be pleased with me. And now I can just keep Him at, my, at arm's length. Never really let Him in. We can, through our minds, hide our hearts from God. More recently, I think during this pandemic period where we've just been so divided, I think one of the ways we've hid from, hid from God is through our own anger. Everything is upsetting me so much, and I'm kind of good and mad, and now I'm feeling good because I'm upset and pointing fingers and whatever. I can think that I'm believing all the right things, totally right, and in that kind of posture of anger, I can be resisting God. We can resist God and we don't rest either. Keep ourselves distracted, keep ourselves busy. Even as pastors, one of the biggest temptations we have to live an emotionally unhealthy life is to use God to run from him. I can stay so busy in church activities or reading or quoting Dallas Willard or whatever that I can actually not make enough room for God to speak to me because of my own shame my own guilt. What takes us away from a with God life to a life that's maybe not fully without God, but a life in which we're resistant to him is our grasping and our hiding. But even here in Genesis 3, if we read later on, I encourage you to read this on your own as well. There is good news. There is hope. Now there's just a snowball effect of all the negative consequences of what happens when we disconnect ourselves from the life-giving resources of God, which is what sin is all about. But there's still hope. In Genesis 3.15, it says this, and this is called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto first. This kind of other word here, evangel evangelium, is kind of where we get evangelism or gospel or good news. The first good news we see is that God one day will promise to send someone who will crush the enemy's head and will strike his heel. And we see this is the first time that a lot of scholars say this is where Jesus begins to enter into the scene to defeat this enemy who has tempted us, who has beaten us. But one day he will not only be defeated at the cross and the resurrection, he will be annihilated forever. But God's people will ultimately triumph over the enemy. So even in the midst of this wreckage, even as we choose to move from a without God life or a with God life to a without God life, there's hope. Later in the book of Romans, I encourage you to read Romans 5 on your own this week. We see how this without God life came through Adam and all of us kind of born into this state where we have a sense of spiritual deprivation. 
We were made to be spiritually alive because we've lived a without God life. We've disconnected ourselves from that spiritual life. But Jesus has come to give us an additional birth, a life with God again to awaken us. And that's what we pray for, that all of us become new and made spiritually alive. Jesus has done that. He doesn't just balance the scales. You know, Adam's sin did this, but Jesus levels it out. No, Jesus goes far beyond. And where death reigned in Adam, life reigns that much more through Jesus. So there is good news for the, uh, for the hope for all of us as we put our faith and trust in Christ, as we remember what he's done for us. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that means we don't have to live under the burden of shame any longer because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God no longer sees our sins, our mistakes, our failures, our past, our bad thoughts, whatever that might be. Instead, we are covered in Christ's righteousness, which means when God sees us, he sees Jesus, who he is and what he's done. That counts for us. Amazing news. And why that is such good news for everyone, everywhere, always. Amen? But there's also something for us too. And I'll wrap up with this. I'll invite the band to come forward here. To grow spiritually. And I believe what God's inviting us to in this with God life is simply this movement. To move from grasping and hiding. To make the conscious daily choice. To go from grasping and hiding to surrendering and embracing. We trade trying to grasp the life for ourselves, driven by ego, driven by a desire for autonomy. And instead we see that God wants something better for us than we could ever hope for for ourselves. And so we surrender our life, our will, our desires, our timing to him. And as a little prayer practice, I'm going to invite you maybe just to think about what am I grasping onto and go from clenched fists to a sense of surrender, opening our hands and laying these things down before God. What are you holding on to that you think is going to give you life that maybe goes against the grain of how God's created the universe and called you to live life with him? What do you need to surrender? And for many of us, we're living this way with God. Even if we believe, we're still living with this guilt and this shame. We're hiding from God. But rather than hiding from Him, God's inviting us to open our hands to have a posture of embracing and receiving the love, the forgiveness, the grace, the relationship that He desires for each and every one of us. Just imagine the prodigal son returning back to the father. He wants to be a servant, but God says, no, you're my child. And he embraces him. And that's what we're called to embrace. To allow ourselves to be embraced by God. We were made for this with God life, to share life with him forever. Let's pray now. A prayer of surrendering and embracing. And just silently, I just want to invite you now, maybe clench your fist, reflect on for a moment. What am I grasping? No, it might not be that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but what do I think is going to give me what I want the most? Now I invite you to just open your hands, palms down, to just surrender that to the Lord, to God.
I'm yours. I'm yours. Take my life. Lord, I need you. And maybe think about how you're hiding from God for a moment. And know that because we are made right in God's sight because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we do not need to be crippled with shame any longer. We are free to receive God's love and the gift of life. And we don't need to do anything to earn it whatsoever. Here, right now, as you maybe open up your, your hands, how is God inviting you to just embrace and receive his love? Thank you for the good news of the gospel that we find even here in Genesis 3 amidst the scene that describes why everything went wrong. But thank you, God, you keep pursuing us even when we walk away from you. And so as we sing this next song, Lord, it's our proclamation, it's our prayer. God, we need you. Thank you for being with us. It's in Jesus' name everyone prayed together and said, amen.